The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to Identity Matters Podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I will be your host. The Hebrew word for truth is betrothed. To be betrothed is to be engaged, to be married. According to Hebrew law, to be betrothed, engaged to someone, as Joseph was to Mary, you are already married. In Western theology, that is not the case. In Western theology, from the moment you are engaged to the time that you are married, you have this permission-based time period to drop this person, try on a different pair of shoes before you tie the knot. That is not biblical. Betrothment is marriage. True grace is marriage. When you are engaged to someone in God, that relationship is bound in heaven. For Joseph to say that he had to put his wife away, all of you theologians that are listening to me, you know that the translation, even in the Greek, means to divorce. So why is the Greek using the term to divorce? Joseph was thinking about divorcing Mary is because the Greek is required by God to support the Hebrew. Truth is betrothment. Jesus is truth. He's the betrothed one. True grace is a commitment of marital relationship, Jesus, with his bride. The basics, and the basics is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, so I am the method of practice. I am the I am the truth, the betrothed one. I am the the life. The flow. So get this. If you're buying into the demonic doctrine that you can drop someone if you're engaged to them without divorcing them, then you have no idea of the true theology of becoming born again. Are you believers right now who have the indwelling life of Jesus Christ and you're claiming that Jesus lives within your mortal bodies? How many of you here today would raise your hand and say, I'm married to Christ right now? If you stick to Western theology and Roman Catholic doctrines, you are not. When is the wedding for you and I? as the bride of Christ. One, the husband has to finish the house. Two, he has to come and get his bride. Three, he has to take his bride before the father and say, I have presented her in her purity. Four, there has to be a wedding feast. A huge party. And God is going to look at you standing there with Jesus and say, You were married to my son 
on July 3, 1959. He's not going to say, today is the day I'm going to marry you to him. Jesus came to present an engagement to us. And in this engagement is when the working out of our salvation is to clean us up, to, to redeem, to work out our salvation. So we can enjoy this wedding feast that is coming before us. So those of you who are more on the theological bent, you're going to find today's message probably quite interesting. And those of you who have an attachment to the Roman Catholic Church, my email is drfinney at iomamerica.org. That's dr. P-H-I-N-N-E-Y at I-O-M America dot org. Or you can text me at 602-292-2982. Because I'm going to show you something today about the Reformed Church and the churches that came from the Reformed theology and the Roman Catholic Church that is going to upset a lot of people. How these two branches of spirituality have deceived us into not understanding the word of truth. And how the people who truly stand on Jesus being the truth are heretics today. They're the rejected ones. And the truths of who you are in Christ. And I'm going to show you why. Grace has benefits. We are now launching a new section of true grace. It is mind-bending. I've kind of poured over the next four or five messages, and it's mind-bending what the Lord is delivering through His Scriptures for us to see, be reminded of, or maybe being taught for the very first time. But we first have to take a quick look at our past. I know some believers that are listening right now that have a theological bent never to look at your past. That everything is through the cross and everything is, is a fresh view. Which is true, right? But they can't look at their past. In fact, I did bring something forward in a believer's life here recently and got rebuked for bringing something forward, but I wasn't bringing it forward to rub their face in their sin. I was bringing it forward so they look at their tendency, their vulnerability, so they don't repeat it. And this gentleman said, I will not look at my past. Why is there a danger in that? It is your testimony. Your testimony is not future. The trinity of the past is the visual symbol of the trinity. You see, God the Father has been forever. Jesus Christ said in Hebrews 13.8, says, I am the same today, yesterday, and forever. My past is me, I am me, my future is me. It's the trinity of a testimony. My past is Steve Finney. 
my present is Steve Finney, and my future is Steve Finney. That is, if I have a new past. If I don't and I'm unsaved, it's still my trinity of my identity. Are you with me? It is my past that determines where I go in the future. And so therefore, if I'm bound to my old past because I'm not saved, it is my past that leads me to hell. Is this not gospel? Am I making this up here? You see, I was born in sin. I grew up in my childhood as a sinner. And in many cases, live out my adult life as a sinner. And then in my present, I somehow am being told that. And in my future, they're telling me I'm going to hell. The trinity of identity determines your destination. Now, if I'm born again, everything, the fact that I was born into sin, I was raised as a child into sin, and as an adult, let's say, you know, I get saved at 22 years of age, everything up to 22 years of age is to determine my destination. That is, you know, I'm wearing a sign that says, on your way to hell, you cannot go past, go or collect your 200 bucks. So my past is pretty important, isn't it? So let's say that I go to the cross, I go through the eye of the needle, and I have this conversion, and I have a brand new life today. And as I look into my rearview mirror, I see that my past has been washed out. I could talk about my past in the sense of redemption. I don't throw it away. Theologians, now listen to me very carefully. Those of you who have bought into the fact we must forget our past in order to understand grace. That is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. I must be able to look at my past as Christ was able to look into the Old Testament and say, the law, the letter of the law, kills and destroys. He didn't abolish it. He embraced it. And he paid the penalty present to fulfill the law, fulfill the past, so that he could say, I'm the same forever that way. I'm the same forever that way. And you have the privilege of looking at me today. So if the enemy was really wanting to destroy this salvation message in the world today, I mean, we're down to 3% salvations in the church. In the 50s, we were up into the 60 percentiles. Where you had pastors preaching with such boldness that people were wanting to get saved before the altar call. And today, 3%? And where are those 3%? Are they being accomplished through the Ministries outside the church of Laodicea? I hate taking baths in lukewarm water. I am the type that turns that hot water on and, and brings that water right to a temperature. I'm almost scalding myself because I want it to cleanse me. That's how God is. I want it hot. I want your preaching hot. 
Don't bring that darkness into this light. Don't, don't tamper with the boiling water of salvation, Stephen. And if they're cold, tell them they're cold. Tell them they're going to hell. Because I need people to understand that the past, the present, and the future is my son. Or they won't understand what engagement means, what invitation means for today, and what wedding feast means for tomorrow. The trinity of salvation. If you're afraid to talk about your past, you might not be saved. Yes, 602-292-2982, I'd love to show you that. It doesn't mean you're not saved. If you're hiding the light and life of Jesus Christ under some box in your life, you have some questions to get answered before the Lord. Why are you afraid to let your past, your weaknesses, be put out there for the entire world to see? Why? Why are you still ashamed? Why are you still paralyzed? Why is your lips sealed and you are now ashamed of the gospel? Good questions. You can tout all day long that you believe your past is important. But if I don't hear about it, I'm not sure I believe you. Okay, so using the illustration of the receiver we used earlier, does the receiver that was put inside you, antennas, I'm seeing that little Martian, my, my favorite Martian, does the receiver called the line of Judah ever receive messages from Satan? No. Then how is it that you can have graven images rush through your mind and buy into them or bring them into your cell phone so the image pops up right in front of you? So you start obsessing over that image. How is this possible? I know there's an antenna there that is bent up. The flesh. See, the flesh was not taken away. Could God have removed your Adamic flesh tendencies upon salvation? Of course he could have. Is your Adamic flesh sin that is in you that is not you? As Paul said, quote unquote, Is it your past? 
So what are people doing or confessing before God when they say, I will not look at my past? There was nothing for you to forgive or say. They will never realize the past is the receiver that still is within them. It's the greatest deception Satan's got going for him. And people who are confessing that do not understand what Paul said is no longer I who sins, but sin that is in me. See, he wouldn't even identify himself with his flesh receiver. He wouldn't. It's not the old nature. It's not the old man. All that got crucified. It's the sin that is inside our human cells. If you did a DNA study on your human cells, you're going to find out that you're dying daily. You're going to find out that this body of yours is going to lay in a casket and deteriorate and literally become dust. That's your receiver of the flesh. From dust you came to ashes you must go. You see... The past will take care of itself. It, the dead will bury the dead. Do you understand that? It will take care of itself. We happen to be living a life with the flesh receiver in here, but God literally says, I have a receiver that I'm going to give you that's going to overpower every image, every voice, every message, so you can hear my voice. But then we get up the next morning and our fleshly receivers pull in a few new texts. Stupid, idiot, told you, never, you know, and, and the texts start rolling in. Well, see, the enemy knows how I function by flesh because he's the mirrored image of my flesh. So he knows what works on me. Why would he grab something that doesn't work on me? He's going to grab stuff for all of us that work for us. And he just starts sending the messages. I would hate to see Satan's text message bill every month. Sending hundreds and thousands of these messages to the minds of believers. He doesn't care about the non-believers. That's why they live happy lives and they're rich. Or not. He doesn't care. They're already in his little Santa's bag. He's going to take them back to the North Pole. You see, but believers, hmm, if I can't take them with me, I'm going to let them take me with them. And it works well. Um, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Okay. Now let's, let's keep to our... our definitions from the Hebrew and the Greek 
where you saw love say Jesus Christ? Read it again out loud. Just read it. Do not Jesus Christ the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone Jesus Christ the world, the Jesus Christ of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And the okay, of the now here's the simplicity of this. Don't make the world about Jesus. Don't put Jesus in the world. He really worked on separating us from that. And he's saying, don't go telling me that you have Jesus living inside you if these following things are happening. And your identity is in these external things. Now that's where I want to pick it up. Okay? Now let's take a look at this slide. Grace is in the believer. When I use the term believer, I mean it's someone who has received their new receiver, the Lion of Judah, through the Holy Spirit. So, the history of the Christian theology reveals there's been more of an emphasis put upon you being in Christ than there has been of Christ being in you. You say, what's the big deal? If I put such a big emphasis on me being in Christ, shouldn't that pretty much take care of it? No, it wouldn't. And society, Christian society, has proven that. And allow me to prove the point. Here's the history of grace as we understand it. The Roman Catholic theology has traditionally taught the imparted grace of God in the continuing work of Christ Continuing work of Christ. When you walk into a classic, traditional Catholic church and you stand there and look up either at a stained glass window or a figurine on the wall, what do you see? On the cross. means it's a continuing action. It's an external continuing action. It's never left the cross whereby the empowering energy, as they call it, of God is granted to the Christian based on the membership of the Roman Catholic Church in order to live righteously. I was sitting in the living room of a friend when he went and got his mail and he sat down. He was doing the normal thing you do, just kind of tossing advertisements one way and letters he was going to keep, and he, he got this letter from his church. So he opens it in front of me, and it was a bill from his church for his annual tithe, estimated out according to his salary that they had already previously investigated in order to be blessed. Now, that, that, that's today, okay? This has been going on a very long time. To, to be active in the working out of Christ being on the cross and the sacrament, you, 
You have to be a member of all of this to have this external. The primary emphasis of the Roman theology has not been on the subjective spiritual reality of Christ in the individual indwelt Christians. However, but rather on the collective and uh, corporate realities of Christ's work in the official Roman state church. Now, the reason why that we have in the good old United States of America, as well as other countries, something about our buildings. Now, it's only been 20 years since it's been an acceptable practice to actually have churches meet in rented buildings. Strip malls. Old warehouses. 20 years! Before that, you had to get this sanctioned building on the corner of a street that was approved by a denomination that is going to cover your insurance, it's going to cover your your liability issues. It's going to cover the pastor's salary. It's going to cover all of this. Sanctioned externally as holiness. That's the reform branch. Whereas the Catholic Church, no one questions that. Of course that belongs to the Pope. Of course that building belongs to the, to the Holy Roman Empire. Of course that They don't even question it because it has been in their tradition since day one. That holiness shows up. Are you with me? Holiness shows up when the priest calls it up. I know another religion that's good at that. But that's not our message. This is where the demonic doctrine of external grace was birthed. Those who have membership in the Church of Rome are regarded as in Christ. And there's no salvation apart from the Holy Roman Church because of this demonic doctrine. Pope Francis makes this proclamation November 11, 2014. Remember what it was? Eighteen of our churches here locally were invited to Rome. They went. Two churches in Hutch... That's Hutchinson, Kansas. Two churches in Hutch, the pastors now dress like priests. And they were assigned to put unified in their title somewhere. Or unity. He made a proclamation. What was that proclamation? It was public. It was in the news. For about 10 minutes, but it was in the news. That they were supporting the universal church. Pope Francis actually came out and said that the Catholic Church is announcing one world religion. And I have been called to unify the religions of the world. You see, the reason why they have to do that is because of this. See, if, if, if they can't evangelize through Roman Catholicism, which they've done a pretty good job of, if you ask me, then they have to go grab all the religions and sanctify them externally as a part of the Roman Catholic Empire. And that's what's happening. 
They believe that Christ is expressed as himself through the Holy Roman Church, particularly through the Pope. You know, I've heard some more modern Catholics say the Pope doesn't believe he's Christ. The Pope does not believe that he's infallible. The Pope doesn't, we don't believe that anymore. And to that I say, you might want to go look up the Latin definition for Pope. Because you can change the definition as the more embarrassed you are, but you won't change the reality of the doctrines of that church because you're embarrassed. He is the Christ. He is the present Christ of the earth. That is what a cardinal will tell you. 602-292-2982 They also tout that Christ is, the ex- is expressed through Christians whenever the Catholic Church acts through the Pope. So if the Pope says, we're going to have a one world religion, all the little towers that are all throughout the whole world, all these little towers that receive the message, they have churches everywhere. Do you not understand that? They have churches everywhere. Every little community, every county, every state, every nation, that somewhere close by there's a little tower so when you send your message, it'll have a connection point. They have the power to do something globally that the human mind could not accept. That's how big they are. Any businessman knows you have to tamper with monopoly to have global power. You have to. You have to tamper with monopoly. And they push their business right up to the edge of monopoly, violating monopoly laws. And then they back up a little and stay there. And if they keep getting more and more powerful, they have to section off their company into smaller companies. That's how it works. Well, why wouldn't that work spiritually? It does work spiritually. This collective and corporate emphasis on the Roman church has diminished emphasis on the personal and subjective action of Christ in the indwelt Christian individual. Now let's talk about the Reformed church. Three simple points. Number one, reacting against the Roman emphasis on subjectively infused Graced, when you infuse something, what happens? You take something externally, and whether it's by heat or whatever technology you would use, you infuse this external thing to another thing. To where ultimately that new thing gets a new title. You can do it with plants. You can do it with really anything. Infusion is a very powerful piece of science. 
it is a spiritual principle that is very powerful too. Infusing one thing, a bunch of religions, let's just say that, and take a bunch of religions and infuse it into a mainstream that's not going to move. It's immovable. That's what external grace is. They have taken an external action of God and infused it into a mainstream church line. That's what this means. Infused grace. The reformers reverted to an almost exclusively symbolized reference to the redemptive realities that are external outside of the Christian believer. Number two, Protestants. Protestant theology has traditionally taught the historically represented acts of Christ, external acts of Christ, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension for us, i.e. on our behalf. In so doing, Christ is also said to have died, rose, ascended for us, as our representative and substitute, in our place. Christ's historical action or actions become personally successful for us when we respond by our faith. Not his. Now this, is, this is out of their theology. Three. Christ assumes our place for us before the heavenly judge, whereupon the divine judge pardons and forgives our sins on the basis of Christ's historically objective actions. In this material and, and judicial framework, God the judge legally imputes the benefits of Christ's righteousness to the Christian, declares we are, as Christians, in right standing with him, and promises a full inheritance of the benefits in the future in heaven, in our future in heaven. All of this action of Christ is outside of, external to the believer, which is where the Reformation people get external grace. So here's the deal. Indwelling presence of grace, a study of the indwelling presence in the life, in life action. That's a very important statement. Life in life action of the living Lord Jesus in us, for us, and through us is therefore and becomes an enemy of the churches that evolve from the Reformation, which is now labeled Western theology. When people think of the Reformation today, classically they think of Western theology. Now when we were traveling Norway, and we were being given this tour around Skivanga, what did the tour guide tell us? Remember Jane? No. Sorry. We came upon this statue by the by the ocean, and she said, we birth Christianity in America. That we are the founders of Christianity. Well, that's because Luther 
basically uh, started his and finished his movement in Norway. And this spot that she was pointing out is where we would send out all the missionaries to the new America. Infusion. But see, now it's us. We're Western theology. And people buy into it. They don't understand that Martin Luther had some very bad thinking going on. He was still bringing in a lot of the stuff from the Catholic Church. Do you understand? You can go down the street and attend a Lutheran church and find Catholicism in 2016. By the way, they dress, their eulogy, their etc. It's 2016. Yes, Luther brought some nasty things from the Catholic Church into Protestantism. Infusion. And who's the crazy ones today? You are. Because you refuse to be infused anymore. So let's go on. It says here, tragically speaking, Western theology has adopted a reformed version of Catholic external grace. It is important to acknowledge, though, that there have been many hundreds, thousands, if not millions of believers in history who believe, taught, and experience the indwelling life of Jesus as a life, and that grace is inside you, and that grace is a part of being betrothed to Jesus Christ. So stay with me. You'll never forget this illustration, I promise you, if you're an indwell believer. Grace is your wedding ring. Grace is your wedding ring. And when Jesus invited you to become a member of the body of Christ, the bridal party of Christ Jesus, the very bride, that life, that life, that ring, that everlasting life was slipped on your finger and that grace ring sealed you forever in that marriage. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you, which translates out, I will not divorce you. Because you have the ring of grace. And you try to put that ring on an unbeliever and say that grace applies to that unbeliever. You do not understand good theology. Grace is a life. It's everlasting life. It's a life that never ends. It is the ring of marriage. Commitment from Jesus Christ to you. Do you have the ring? Look at your finger spiritually and ask yourself, do I carry the ring of grace? Or do I use it like some kind of cheap doctrine that's crept its way into the church, that's infused its way into the church, that's granted license, that has denied the groom? Jude 
one four. Cheap grace is like having a relationship with a prostitute. Refusing to get married to her, but having the benefits of her. It makes me sick. The way the world is using grace today. It is important that we understand there are people that have paid the price so that we may understand today. I am not ashamed to say I am of the people of Oswald Chambers. I am of the people of Watchman Nee. I am the people of the beloved John. I am the people of Paul. To say I am one of those that refuses to be infused into a mainstream theology, but I am infused into the life of Jesus Christ, grafted in as a marriage partner. Here's seven things we need to remember. Prior to considering the indwelling presence and action of Christ in, for, and through the indwelt Christian individual, it would serve us well to establish some perimeters of historical Christian thought that should serve as safeguards. Here's seven things we should never believe. Anyone who is a universalist who's been infused by an external grace, you're going to have a problem with these seven things, most likely. Number one, the monotheistic distinction of the Creator of God, not including Jesus and the Holy Spirit as a part of that trinity. Oh, they believe in God, that He is supreme, whether He's Allah or whatever you want to name Him. There's no other gods before Him. You think that's just in the Muslim world? I'm afraid not. It is in some of the churches down our street who are coming out with statements that are saying that Jesus is not God. He's just a great prophet. And that the Holy Spirit doesn't really live inside you. That's just, that's a symbol. It's a symbolic statement. That's the direction the world's going. Two, the anti-Trinitarian function of the three-in-one function of the Godhead. It is actually, these three work together. They function together to accomplish everything we're talking about. And these anti-Trinitarian people are saying, no, that's probably not true. Three is the human responsibility of man to, to, to derive spiritually in the freedom through their choices. Not God's choice. So everything is self-help. Everything is education. Everything is present the options to the person so the person can make the choice. And all you're doing is advancing them in universalism. You don't have a choice, folks, 
if you're going to hell or not. If you've been marked out in condemnation, infused external grace, you don't have a choice. The only thing you can do is lay your life before God and say, God, please plead with the living God that He shall save you and redeem you. But here's my point. If you are being humbled to the point of pleading with God for salvation, you're going to get saved. You see, He would never bring you to that point if He had not already chosen you to come to that point. Because most people who are of the infusion are simply callous. They don't care. They love to argue. They love to wrangle with words and add one more degree to their life so they can be stupid educators. So we can train people to be more and more intellectually birthed of the tree of knowledge. Really? The tree of knowledge has billions of brains connected to it that are brilliant. They are brilliant people going to hell. Doesn't it bother you that Einstein might be in the pit of hell right now? Does that bother you? I've cried over Albert Einstein's destination. And I prayed, I hoped that God touched him on his deathbed. You see? It's not impressive for God to have these bright people in the earth. Satan wants smarter people for control. The smarter your phone is, the more I can control you. Do you understand that? That's, that's the business behind smartphones. The smarter the phone, the more stuff I can send you. The dumber your phone, I can't get it sent to you. My old boss says, I'm going to hang on to analog as long as I can. I said, Dave, they're going to turn analog off. This is when analog was huge. And digital was just coming in. He says, I'm hanging on to my analog number as long as I, as long as I can. And what did they do? Last year they turned analog off. Yeah, it's kind of like cable television and no longer can you put rabbit ears on top of your television. Now you have to get a device that converts the errors down to digital, sends a digital signal into your television so you can get analog. That's what that phone is. They're hanging on to those stubborn, you know, phone people who are still using analog. But that's how they do it. Satan does the exact same thing. There is no difference, really. For the fall of man and the alienation of man from God is a fallacy. When they can't look at you and say, in their past, they look this way. Just turning them that way is almost impossible, I have discovered. If just grab and hold their shoulders and say, we're going to look at your past. To be able to look so far back to say, my very birth, I was born a failure. I was born 
destined to hell. That's where we're starting with you, young man. Then we're going to move you forward. I'd like to see you do that with someone. I'd really love to see that on video. Can it be done? Of course it can. Is it done a lot nowadays? No, it is not. And if you do take someone and turn them, and you start them with that process, so you make sure this demonic doctrine is not in their mind, that's a good sign. But if they seize up somewhere in between there, I can actually predict their destination. So could you. It really is not difficult. These are demonic doctrines. You with me? Number five, the delusion of the historical foundation of the Christian gospel. To answer the question I asked you earlier, the state of California as a whole, the state of California, if you do a survey with children in the state of California, in seventh grade, today, the result you will get if you ask them, did the Holocaust take place? The Jewish Holocaust, did it take place? What do you think the results of the survey is going to be? It did not. Why? Because 15 years earlier, they did the survey in the public schools in Europe. And the result was, this is where it happened, okay? These are the people that were poking out the eyeballs. Pulling out the fingernails. Bleeding them out. And one generation later, if you ask the grandchildren to the grandfathers that did this nasty work, they're going to say, that never happened. You say, how in the world can this happen? Here's how it, it happens. You train the children never, ever to look at their past. Huh? And you just hold them in place. And sooner or later, the past is an illusion. So you'll have full control of them in the future. And you say, that will never happen to me. It's already happening to you. Anytime any indwell believer puts the light under a box, under a bushel, and hides Jesus from people, who's ashamed of the gospel, you are bound to that fear of looking in your past. It starts in the past and it ends in the future. The human responsibility of man applying grace as an external work by way of the sacraments. Communion is the one that bothers me more than any of them. It's like communion is some holy experience and you have to do it, you know, four times a year, maybe even once a month if you're really holy. Really? Any way to get someone to be bored is tell them the same thing more than once, let alone a hundred times. It creates boredom. And that's what's happened with communion. It's like, it's just bread, maybe. It could be cracker. It's grape juice. 
There's no remembrance in that. But getting up every day and drinking from the fruit of the Holy Spirit, like little Jack, breaking off the body of the Lion of Judah, and eating life, oh, now that's a, that's a sermon that'll preach. And then when you do have these special times of communion, you'll probably remember what it's for. Finally, number seven, the process of salvation and personal growth is through external sanctions and mental studies or memorization. How many have memorized a Bible verse? Okay, pretty much everyone. Why, why do you do that? We're supposed to let the Word bear witness with the Word in us and have it be brought alive. Instead of getting children to go, um, I, I've, been, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not... Uh, yet not I, but, but Christ that lives in me and, and the life he wants. What? The, the life I now live, I live by... Really? How are you going to use that on the street? Excuse me. You, you've been crucified with Christ and... Have you? <laughs> but that is not Christianity. That is not indwelling life. But if you read the word and you just say, God, make it alive in me. You may read it a hundred times that day. I don't know, but he will make it alive. You'll never forget that passage. I'm still searching for where Romans is located. Am I not? Or hunting, where's Zechariah? Is there a Zechariah? See, see, go to that page that lists Samoa. Really? Jude? Hey, Jude. Yeah. I know there's a song. For, and a lot of people would blame that on my dyslexia and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there is no one that can tell me I don't know the word. That can't be done. It's in me. It's alive. And I might not know where Second Chronicles is, but I know who's in it and what it says. And if it all does line up someday, where because I've done the memory thing of where all the books are, even with the songs. Embarrassed as I was sitting at my computer saying these songs and trying to remember the books of the Bible, I still can't remember but I know the word and it dwells among me in me and that's what these babies need to know and just pray over it don't call it scripture memory don't stick it under the tree of knowledge because there's a lot of smart people going to hell who know the word of God by memory but if it's life to you you probably will never forget that for eternity the church as an institutional church at large has been fearful 
that if they would put the emphasis on the indwelling relationship of Christ, it would impose upon the basic foundation of church management. Now, the reason why that we actually pass the offering plate is because of this. This is where it came from. The passing of the offering plate came from the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformation people brought that over. So they thought, you know, it's probably a good idea we, we gather the funds here or we'll never get them. So people became associated with money. Money became associated with an institutional physical church. But even more than that, the institutional church is in fear of losing control over the people because of not being able to get that money and support. Thus requiring the people to depend upon the leadership and government of the church for sanctification. And worse yet, that those churches that are out there that say that you can buy someone out of hell, or if they're too embarrassed to use the term hell or Hades, and they say purgatory, that you can actually throw some cash at a priest to get a few extra indulgences to get someone out of purgatory. And most people think of that today and say, how ridiculous is that? But I'm telling you, there are many religions today that use that technique. Whether it's a prayer cloth you can order through the mail, or whether it is your pastor putting pressure on you to put money in the plate because you've got to pay the rent. It's built into our system. So therefore, to say goodbye to the institutional church, as Europe has had to do, there are empty cathedrals everywhere you look in, in Europe. You say, that'll never happen to America. Wow, are we deceived. It is what's going to come upon us very, very soon. So what's going to happen? The same thing in Europe. Europe is always 20 years ahead of America. Always. Little churches are going to be birthed in homes, in little shopping malls, and so forth. It's slowly being brought back to the original state of the church. God isn't into this. He never has been. The tendency of the Western church is to exercise power, maintain control, and keep a handle on the Christian enterprise as if it is a business. So when you walk into your average church, you might see book displays. You might see bake sales. You might see whatever and not even think twice about it. And if Jesus would walk in, I, I oftentimes wonder, would he flip a few of those cake tables? The church as an institution or as a business is what makes it work today in our free enterprise system we have here in America today. To allow the true grace activity of God to function freely and internally in the indwell believer, not only has been shunned as a risky business, because there's usually not a lot of money in it, but allowing Christ attendees to believe such truth removes the institution function out of the church, the bride of Christ. So if we are the church, Satan would have to build a system to say, no, you need to go to church. You need to give your offerings. You need to take care of that, that building. You need to whatever. So therefore, 
the funding, the everything becomes very, very, very localized instead of being the church worldwide. But then the enemy is going to use that too to build a worldwide church. So no matter where we are, what God's view, the enemy is going to attack without question. Here's our identity matter statement for today. The good news of the true gospel is that God in Christ is reinvested and restored in the believer. In, for, and through the receptive, there's that receiver, receptive, indwelt Christian individual. The objective of the gospel is not to formulate an orthodox belief system, nor to construct and maintain a religious organizational control. The Spirit of Christ is free to express the character of the Father in Christ in a spontaneous way in each believer who possesses the life of Christ, and that unto the glory of God. The Holy Spirit must not be imprisoned in church structures, encased in a book interpretation or education, or dependent on man's interpretation of what God says. The Spirit of the living Christ is present in the indwelt Christian, existing as the identity of the believer and functioning to express himself through the believer. This is very simple stuff for the Lord. It's very complex stuff for us. You see, if you take the example of scripture memorization, and let's pretend that you did this scripture memorization as surveyed, 83% of the church attendees memorize from NIV. Let's pretend NIV is not a good translation. Do you realize that that young person is going to spend the majority of their entire life fighting doctrines they've memorized in their minds? Now that, when those gender-friendly translations dominate the market and scripture memory is the pressing way of securing the scriptures in your mind, and they're out there on the street and the Spirit of God is trying to call forth the Word, what do you think is going to come to their mind? Oh, Jesus is not male or female. How many times have I heard that in ten years? A lot. So what are we going to do with this? Knowledge, scriptural knowledge of the tree of knowledge. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. There will be no fighting and warring amongst the one world religion that shall be introduced to our society. But if you approach someone who knows the Word because they know the Word lives in them, and the Word of God is alive in them, and they don't need a book to verify that, because the life has verified it, try to deceive that person. That's the way God made us, believer. Don't train up your children to be parrots. Parroting statements, parroting words of God, parroting God, parroting Jesus, parroting concepts. Train your children up in the way that they should go so that when they get old, they'll never part from it. Train them in the living life of Jesus Christ. And if they don't have 
the life of Christ living inside of them yet, do not be embarrassed to say, Honey, you don't have Jesus in you yet. So why are you trying to act like him? Act like a sinner. They say to their kids, Grow up and be good kids, good people, achieve well, make your daddy happy or proud, as a word that is used. We need to be brought back to the basics, not just of salvation, but of equipping. The parents, you need to be using the word of God to rightly divide their minds. To say that is not the Lord we serve. That is a lie. Here is the truth. Truth isn't in you. Yes, you're going to have a hard time understanding, Daddy. Just do what you're told until it becomes life. You see, that kind of parenting, that type of training in discipleship or parenting children is rare today. And that's why we have an entire world that is filled with spoiled people. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.